Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Marcella. And we are both transracial and transnational adoptees, as well as licensed clinical social workers and trauma therapists. We have dedicated our lives to shedding light on the complexities of adoption and the system responsible for them. We have seen both personally and professionally the silent and overt struggles brought on by this trauma, and we are determined to do our part to bring about healing. We know that some of the information we share and topics we unpack may be triggering and uncomfortable at times, but we feel the only way to promote change is to be honest by sharing our truths and elevating the experiences of those in our community. We hope you will join us on this journey of listening and learning with an open heart and an open mind. Welcome to Adoptee's Dish. Hey everybody, welcome back to Adoptee's Dish. This is Amy. And this is Marcella. We are so happy that you're tuning in with us for another episode. We're really excited to dive into this topic today. We've actually had some people that have, you know, kind of asked us a little bit about doing this topic. And I know Amy and I both get questions individually all the time from people. Um, So we're going to dive into talking a little bit about things to ask a potential therapist if you as an adoptee are wanting to get into your own therapy journey, if you as a parent are trying to seek out resources for your child, because Amy and I can both attest to this, you you really need to do your due diligence. And I think a lot of times we have people that it's really overwhelming and we're hoping to just give you a little bit of a leg up and a place to start. Yeah. And shout out to you if this is something that you've been contemplating for a while and now are deciding that you really want to move forward with um, starting therapy. Maybe this is the first time you've ever done therapy. Maybe this is you've taken a break after a long time and are wanting to get back into it, but maybe have a different focus or things that you want to work on. I get asked all the time, do you think I should be in therapy? And I always say, yes, we all should be in therapy. Like in a say the same world, thing. Every, we, everybody oh, should be in therapy. Everyone should be in therapy, right? And I always get so curious when people tell me, oh, I was in therapy. And then my therapist said, like, everything was fine. I don't need therapy anymore. I was just kind of like, what? You like, when, is, when is that day going to come for me? Right. I need to ask my therapist. <laughs> but I really believe that we're all in evolution and we're all on this journey. And, you know, there's so much that can constantly be learned and adapted. And um, I think therapy is a phenomenal tool to do that. So we wanted to just, especially when we look at it from an adoption lens, we wanted to kind of point out some of our most asked questions and answer those for you guys. And also some red flags, some things that if a therapist says or does this, maybe this might not be the right fit for you moving forward if you're wanting to explore adoption related issues. Mm-hmm. What I think is really important too, and I've just learned this from my own experience and I have worked with clients over the years is it's also okay to kind of have like a little therapy like village and like it doesn't mean you're going to be with one therapist or a multiple, you know, therapist for like years and years and years. But like, I think that I, I, I think what I always tell parents, especially when I get the calls for people, is like, you're never going to find the perfect therapist out there. Like that's very, very rare to find. And so I have found for myself that I've had to kind of like modge podge little bits of things together in order to kind of create what works best for me. And I think that sometimes people get so pigeonholed into, I have to find one therapist that just does it all and hits all the boxes and checks all of the things. 
And sometimes that's just not realistic, especially since there is such a huge demand for therapists right now, especially like high quality, like really competent therapists. And so I always just kind of disclaimer that for people of, you know, you can kind of like piece together your own little therapy healing village. Yeah. I'm curious if you would mind sharing, because some people might not even know what that means or what that would look like. Would you, do you mind sharing? And I can do this too, what your healing village looks like. Yeah. So I have my like therapist that I see regularly, just like for, you know, she's a trauma therapist. She will do EMDR and those kinds of things with me. And I've been with her for years at this point. So shout out to her. Um, And she also, which I love, incorporates some more holistic things. Like I've talked about in other episodes, she'll do like Reiki in addition to EMDR and like those kinds of things, which are just super powerful and helpful for me. I also have seen somebody that I will see for intensives, which is a mixture for me of like EMDR and IFS, internal family systems work to really work on like inner child healing, to work on, you know, helping all of my protective parts within my protective system to kind of uh, collaborate a little bit better. And that's done a little less regularly, but for like way longer chunks, like I might do something for like three or four hours. Um, I also see a naturopathic doctor that, you know, is kind of uh, less of the westernized medication stuff, which is really helpful for me. Um, I also see my own just like soul Reiki practitioner who helps align all of my chakras and helps my nervous system to just realign and also does some kind of um, like ancestral healing work and kind of things like that. So I have found that for me, having the mix of all of those things is just what works for me. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what I have found right now works, works for my system. But what about you? That's awesome. Yeah. So I see my regular therapist and she is a true trauma therapist. She's actually not touched um, by the adoption experience, but because she is is such a good trauma therapist and she understands the science behind attachment and neurobiology and attachment cry and all that stuff, we do um, EMDR intensives as well. We do DBR, which is like a newer modality that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, we do, um, a lot of parts work and she does structural dissociation, which I think is like a must if you are an adopted person. Yeah, for sure. Um, and she's amazing with that. And then I also get massages regularly. That's something that's like very oh, like great body work for me for like somatic stuff and getting comfortable with touch again. And like that mm-hmm. can be really hard to do just to slow yeah. my body down for an hour. Um, that like helps me flex the muscle of like getting comfortable with being calm, which is hard. Yes. For me. I yoga for me is wildly therapeutic. There's been times in my life that I've endured just really intense shifts around grief. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's too much for me to do like the intensives and stuff, but that's a way for me to do some of that sensory work and that somatic work and the mind body connection. I like swear by yoga for me, that's like a huge, huge, yeah. um, a huge thing for me as well. Other thing that I do is I work with a medium, which I know might scare some people away, like right now, like, oh, love it. But I work with a medium love and I do astrological work around with some of that stuff. I really believe in that. I pull tarot cards every morning. It's like a way to help me ground and like yeah. do some journaling and meditative work. So I really, I added that to my repertoire recently and it was like 
doing all because I you, you know you know kind of like the basics of things or you hear things on like the internet but it's very different when you are working with somebody that is like mm-hmm. that is their stuff and like it's not just some like online quiz and it was it was so mm-hmm. interesting what came up and it was like so spot on I was like wowed by it yeah it's amazing so I do that and then I think like um you know, I think connecting with adoptee community too. I think there's some power mm-hmm. in knowing other adoptees and adoptee community and just being able to be around other people without having to put the disclaimers um, in front yeah. of everything that I'm about to say. That's also super healing. So I'm really close with certain people such as yourself. And um, and then I do find healing work in the work that I do. I really do find um, mm-hmm. healing yeah. and just showing up to work every day. And, and um, I'm reminded that of what the soul can endure. And, um, I think that there's a lot there that I learned from, from my clients and the families that I work with. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that is something I think is really important to keep in mind that it is, um, it is an individual process and it can take time to kind of build up your village and what works for you and kind of where you glean all of that healing from and absorb all of that from. But I think that it's really important even as we go through all of these things, just to keep in mind as you're building up that village, or even if you're just starting with step one of just finding one person to start with, these are some things that um, will only benefit you and making sure that you get the highest quality care possible. Because as we know, adoption is extremely complex and um, it's really important that we have providers and are linking with people that um, respect that and understand that and can really help us along that journey. Yeah. Not all therapists are created equal. I will say that out there. So, and not everybody shares the same beliefs, not everybody practices the same modalities. So as a consumer who is literally using a service, which is therapy, do your due diligence, ask the questions. It's totally okay. I can't tell you, I would say the majority of people that I work with, ask for a free 15 minute consultation. And I usually, it usually goes over. It's fine. People want to ask questions and make sure that it's a right fit or it feels potentially like the right fit to work together. And I love when people ask questions because opening mm-hmm. up and being vulnerable is like a really big ask and it's really hard to do. And so you want to make sure that if you're doing it, that you're in a place that feels safe and that feels accessible to, to reach the outcomes that you want. So we're going to kind of go through some of the questions that you can ask if you're not really knowing where to start with that conversation. And we'll just share our feedback and some things to look for, and then some things to be a little wary of (laughs) to be just to have on the radar. Okay. So when 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 we first started like brainstorming a list through this, it was funny because the first three things that both of us said were like the exact same. Like we're just yeah. like, yeah, but all of this, this whole list that we have here, I think is, um, is like not necessarily in any particular order, um, mm-hmm. but just things that we think are important when wanting to work with a therapist that can help process, um, the, or whatever it is that's bringing you to therapy around the, the, the experience of adoption. Yeah. And these are things too, I just want to point out, like whenever I am not taking clients, like I will think to myself, like, who could I refer this client to that like checks a lot of these boxes? So like that is, 
important. And I know that it is like few and far between sometimes, but I think that's something important too for clinicians out there who may be listening of if you are getting a referral for somebody who is impacted by adoption, like these are things that you should be really mindful of when you are potentially making a referral so that they're not just going to somebody that, um, you know, the reality is when there are therapists that are not competent in this area, additional trauma can get caused. And that's not what we're trying to do. So when some, when you first think of things, we're understanding the adoption experience. What for you is like, one of the top most important things that you would want somebody to know. Or smiling as we say this. Um, so I feel like my top three things that I would say, and it's not like top three, just like these are all smushed together as my number one. So I'm like cheating a little bit here, but making sure that whatever therapist you are speaking with, asking them what is their knowledge of, uh, the science behind attachment, what is their knowledge of neurobiology and how that impacts somebody or how that is impacted by trauma, and just having a fundamental knowledge of grief and loss at all stages of development. I think that those are really key points when we're talking about adoption, because those are going to be big, heavy hitting things throughout that person's lifetime that have to be addressed, that have to be acknowledged through the lens of this, this trauma that's occurred or these multiple traumas that have occurred. Yeah, I think that that's what we were laughing at is because when we were first thinking about our list, that was exactly mirroring my top um, things. I think that that is a very important aspect, making sure that your therapist understands the science behind attachment, understanding developmental trauma, mm-hmm. neurobiology, the implications of trauma and how it impacts the nervous system. Um, and then... Yeah, I think that that's kind of exactly right. And grief and loss, right? And viewing this entire experience through the lens of grief, grief, loss, and trauma, no matter how you're entering this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's that's kind of like top level when we're having this conversation. And and then we'll kind of get into the nuances now, but that's exactly what I had as well. Yeah, like those are like like top three to four, like, you know, points to definitely throw in there if you're talking with a therapist and they're like, I've never heard that before. I don't know what you're talking about. Or like, yeah, you know, I went to a training once like that is not enough. These are things that need to be kind of the bread and butter within that therapist's um, kind of work practice and just like how they build their practice. So that can look like, you know, looking on their website, what are they trained in? What, you know, do they say they kind of use as their approach when working with clients? These are all things that are so critical because some of these things can really go off the radar, but at the end of the day, all really boil down to these areas of neurobiology, attachment, grief, loss, you know, just the the traumatization of, of a nervous system. Mm-hmm. And you can ask, just be really direct with a clinician and say something like, how do you view attachment? What is your belief around identity development? Like, do mm-hmm. you believe that trauma impacts us different at different developmental stages? Like you can ask very direct questions. That's not being offensive. In fact, I think it's you just doing your due diligence to make sure that you're hearing the answers and under- making sure that this clinician really is conceptualizing it the way that you do. Another one that we had been talking about is... Um, 
we kind of called it like connection making or helping to resource a family, which I think is really important. I always have the mindset that when I am working with an adoptee, really no matter their age, I have to be ready to work with multiple systems, to be working with multiple people. It's not necessarily or very rarely, I should say, is it literally just the adoptee kind of in their own little bubble that I'm working with that may be all that I'm seeing in terms of like individual sessions, but in terms of some of that collateral work, um, being sure that that clinician or that provider is prepared to do that because it's so, so important, especially when we're talking about um, you know, adoptees that are still minors, you know, being able to connect with the school systems, being able to connect with, um, you know, extracurricular spaces that the adoptee might be in, being able to, you know, communicate with birth family, with adoptive family, with extended adoptive family, any of these different kind of uh, systems that are at play, the foster care system, the agency that they're working with, being able to, um, you know, really advocate and be involved in all of those different areas, which some clinicians just are not willing to do. They're not willing to kind of do that extra legwork because it it is a lot of systems that you're kind of navigating, but that is something that um, is extremely important and being able to link appropriately to resources and anything that can kind of build up that adoptees um, support network. Yeah. And it's, it can be hard because a lot of times when we think of caseworkers in the system, they're so overworked, their caseloads are like astronomically high. It's truly a crime in my opinion. And yeah. sometimes that nudge from a therapist to just kind of say, Hey, have you thought about this? Like they, there's resources and funding out there because your child is on an IEP or something like something like that. So just helping you see really understanding and how to navigate the system, whether that's foster care, whether that's working with agencies, whether that's post-placement, whatever that looks like, helping families really understand the nuances within the system. So you know where and how to connect them to those resources. Even if it's like an adult adoptee that you're wanting to connect mm -hmm. the adoptee community, right? Knowing, oh, your country of adoptees, they have a weekly or a monthly get together online. And I think you, yeah, would or there's these them. social media pages, or there's these yeah. Facebook groups, or there's these meetups, or, you know, in mm -hmm. during COVID, there was all of the zoom stuff going on, like being able to provide yeah. that information. And it's really important that, you know, therapists or providers are, are up to date on those things, because those are things that can really serve, serve our clients, no matter their age. Absolutely. So yeah, just navigating the systems, making those connections, helping build those resources for families. That's huge. No matter the yeah. age, there's resources like across the lifespan. So, and not just for adopted people, for adoptive parents and for birth families as well. So that's also just really important to know if you're coming at this conversation, not as an adopted person, but maybe a biological parent or family member, kinship um, provider, family, or even an adoptive parent or caregiver. Yeah, I think that level of attunement is really key because I can speak from experience. So many of the people that reach out to me because of all of this, you know, trauma that's just been compounded feel so isolated. And so being able to normalize everybody needs support, everybody is worthy and deserving of the care that they're needing in order to heal. Um, that is that is really, really key. And a lot of providers are not willing to do that or not, um, you know, not in the space where they just want to be doing that kind of extra legwork, but it's really needed. Totally. Um, I would say 
also, and this might be a more difficult conversation to have, but if, for example, if you are a transracial adoptee or somebody of a racial or ethnic minority group, being comfortable asking a provider, hey, do you, if that this person does not mirror your racial or ethnic background, like asking, hey, do you have experience working with transracial adoptees? So can you tell me a little yes. bit about what that experience has been like? Um, or do you have experience working with other marginalized populations? How do you um, view cultural competence? Do you think that's an important part of your work? These are all really good questions that you can ask mm-hmm. you to understanding of how somebody prioritizes that and conceptualizes that as part of the pie, a slice of the pie, because it is so, so important. And especially when we're working with transracial families, we want a provider that's able to help hold families accountable so that they do the work. Um, to really provide that safety in the home and don't perpetuate harm. That could be racism or homophobia or whatever it might be in the Mm -hmm. home that really have been so harmful to our communities as transracially adopted people. So that's something else to to keep in mind when vetting a, a clinician or a therapist. Yeah. And I mean, and sometimes those conversations like you had are are difficult to have um, because people don't want to offend or people don't want to be rude or any of those things. But when we're talking about transracial adoptees, like that is really something that's so important. And the therapy space can be so beneficial in helping to work through that, that it really is important from the jump to have that be on the radar. And sometimes it's as simple as asking, you know, the the person that you're calling, like, hey, are you comfortable with addressing, you know, racial and ethnic differences within the context of your therapy sessions? And, you know, kind of seeing how that response is, or, you know, I see that a lot, especially for people that um, are in like rural areas, and maybe like a transracial adoptee is brought into, I don't know, some place that's I don't even know, predominantly white. And that's something that is very common. And it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack to find, you know, a a therapist of color in some of those areas. And so it's really important to make sure that if they are going to be seeing a white therapist, that it is somebody that is not going to shy away from having those really hard conversations and um, helping to work through that identity piece. Totally. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. Another question that you can ask um, is a great question, in my opinion, is asking a clinician, what modalities do you use? What it helps you get, even if you're not a clinician and, you know, a lot of these are just like acronyms and like we're throwing a bunch of letters and and, um, modalities at you, you might not know what they mean, but asking like, hey, what does does EMDR stand for? What does that mean? Or can you tell me a little bit about CBT or can you tell me a little bit about IFS or somatic experiencing? I've heard this, this phrase. Can you tell me if that's something that you use in your practice? Not being afraid to ask that. Again, you're not going to offend. It just gives you a little bit more clarity and direction, especially if there's something specific that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So um, some modalities that I think are just awesome when working with the, our population are, and just feel free to jump in if I miss anything here, but EMDR, sand tray, brain spotting, structural dissociation, internal family systems, somatic experiencing, sensory processing therapies, um, DBR, which is a brand new therapy that's kind of coming right online right now that really focuses on attachment shock at the brainstem level, which is like, I think, revolutionary for for our our community. Synergetic for kids, play therapy, play for therapy, sure. fair play. Fair play, any attachment focused therapy for, for yeah. little ones. 
Yep. Um, and a lot of these can be done with adults and children. So a clinician too asking like, Hey, do you have experience working with the children? Not all adoptee clinicians or people who work in this field actually work with littles and that's okay. Some people tend to, you know, focus more with adults or they do tend to focus more with little children. And that it's just Mm -hmm. kind of like, again, there's nothing right or wrong, but just kind of making sure that you're going to somebody that's really meeting your specific niche of what you need um, and that you want to work on. Um, Let's see, let's see, let's see. Yeah, I think that that's really good. Somebody, this is something that like, this is the hill I'll die on because this is such a passion spot for me, but somebody that really understands dissociation. Yes. We're going to get into like a whole, probably like two part, three part episode on just like, what is dissociation? But the reality is, is that a lot of clinicians don't even believe that dissociation is a thing. And I think this is kind of one of those topics in our field that is like super divided. Like there's some real conflict around like, is dissociation real? Some people will say like, it's not, it's just kind of like foofy. It's kind of like an excuse. I swear that dissociation is a real thing. And I think that if you are impacted by, if you have somebody who truly, truly is adoption informed and adoption competent and a a trauma therapist, I didn't mean, I mean, trauma informed and trauma. um, uh, I I think that you like really need to have a good sense of how dissociation impacts the nervous system, what, what happens as a result of dissociation, what dissociation might even look like. Across um, the lifespan. Across the lifespan, Mm -hmm. um, parts work, and not just like from an IFS standpoint, I'm talking about like more from a structural dissociation standpoint. So like healing, um, trauma related dissociation. And, uh, I think asking, you know, your therapist, if they have any experience or how do they view dissociation? I think that this is probably one of the biggest things missed working when working with our community. And I think it's yes. probably the most important thing. Um, and the more trainings I do, the more research I do, the more I will like, the more I'm like ready to die on this hill, <laughs> like that we yes. need for dissociation training for clinicians working with our community, period. Yes. 100% agree with that. I think that that is, and for some parents or, you know, even adoptees that are seeking out, like you may not even know what that is 100% and that is okay. That is something that you guys can unpack over the course of therapy and lean into all of that. But it really, it is a really key thing to just ensure that the therapist has has some foundational knowledge on because I like Amy will will die on that hill right alongside her. Um, it 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 comes up one hundred percent of the time when you're working with this population. So even if it's not something that you entirely know the ins and out of, do your due diligence. I we just recommend you know asking whatever providers you're talking to if they have some knowledge about that, or do they have access to like consistent consultation if this were to right. come up, right, like something like that. Um. Yeah. So, and then I think simple questions that might go without saying, but I think acknowledging just in this conversation is like, do you understand, do you know anything about the history of how adoption even came to be? Do you understand the nuances within the United States versus inter-country adoptions, domestic, right? Um, Do you like just helping people or getting a sense of what does this person even believe about adoption? What kind of language are they using when they talk about adoption? Are they using adoption positive language or are they really buying into that narrative of like, 
oh my gosh, you're so angry. Just get over it. You know, are you really like leaning into some of that more, you know, you should be grateful. You should be so thankful. So I think somebody who's really able to use adoption positive language and is conceptualizing it again from a place coming from grief and loss and is just able to be really tender and gentle around those conversations. So important. But I think that that kind of segues into some things to maybe be a little wary of and, and pause a little bit if you're noticing some of these conversations, maybe some red flags, Um, not to say necessarily that this clinician is a bad clinician, but just maybe not somebody who really understands the experience and the complexities of what it means to either be adopted or be touched by this experience. Again, whether you're coming as a adoptive parent or a biological parent. Yeah. And I want to segue in here just for a quick second too, and say like, Obviously, some of these things, in in my opinion, right, are like deal breakers, right? And some of them we'll get to. Some of them, they just kind of maybe warrant additional questions or additional research or kind of doing some more of that due diligence. But what I think is is so important and what I think, you know, the takeaway that we would like you all to have, you know, Amy and I, is that we don't want adoptees or anybody with this level of of trauma cycling through therapists, right? Like that is that it breaks my heart when that happens because we talk about it all the time. Adoption is like relational trauma to the max. The last thing that we want to do is be forcing an adoptee, um, no matter their age, into a situation where we find out a little bit down the line, oh, wait, no, this isn't a good fit. Oh, no, this person's causing additional harm. And then we have to deal with all of that additional loss, additional, you know, ruptures within relationships. It, in my opinion, I always think that it is better to do that heavy lifting and that legwork up front. Mm-hmm. And yes, does it mean that that therapist is going to be perfect? No. Does it mean that you might have to address some hiccups and, you know, kind of navigate some hard situations or that the therapist and the adoptee will have to repair stuff in session? Totally. And that's a wonderful part of the healing process. But I think that if we can save the adoptee from not having to go through any additional trauma and additional like messiness that is you know what we're hoping this these lists will kind of help with a little bit for sure so I think for me one of the first things that like immediately jumps out at me and my first gut punch reaction is are you a clinician that's quick to pathologize this experience right like I see so many of my brothers and sisters who are adopted that have, that I think I believe are misdiagnosed with borderline personality and bipolar disorder and oppositional mm-hmm. defiant disorder. I think those are like the top three that I see that I'm just like, wow, I'm so sorry that the clinician or clinicians before you did not view your story through a lens of grief, loss, and trauma. And I'm curious if they did look through those lens, if they would have come to the same conclusion. Our nervous systems to do all sorts of wacky stuff to protect ourselves. And especially when we're in this very vulnerable, preverbal state in life, or when we lose our primary caregivers at any phase of, the, of any phase in our developmental path, um, it, 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 it really takes a toll and a lot of stuff can happen again. Um, yeah. So I just, I think that I always, am, how do you, you know, conceptualize diagnosing 
You know, mm-hmm. are you somebody who's really quick to diagnose? Are you somebody who has to diagnose because you take insurance, which again is not a bad thing, right? I think that that's great if that's a resource available to you. But I will say as a provider that does have to diagnose for insurance companies, there is a difference between after one meeting with somebody slapping a really big, heavy hitting diagnosis like a BPD, like Amy was just saying, versus like an adjustment disorder. There is very, very different, different things going on there. Yeah. And I think that that really segues into somebody who I use the type of clinician that really advocates for medication. Or yeah. do you try to do any and every possible thing to tap into stabilization and grounding and, you know, aligning the nervous system, like maybe through some, you know, dissociate, dissociation work, whatever that might look like before that, like that would be like a last resort kind of thing. So somebody who is quick to, to diagnose and is trigger happy with the medication. To me, those are like glaring red flags because it's like, to me, it's just putting a very flimsy and inappropriate bandaid on a very deep rooted problem. And you're not getting in touch with the real deal of why that person's there. And that's just not somebody that anybody deserves. Yeah. It can, it causes additional harm a lot of the time. It really does cause additional harm. Um, another, this might go without saying, but it's just, I think it's worth being, you know, noting this. Okay. So (laughs) as some, as two social workers who've gone through grad school, it like blows my mind, like legit boggles my brain, how barely anything was ever discussed about adoption Mm -hmm. in any of our classes. And so that might come Uh back to some of you listening, but like it's just a theme in all programs and in the clinical work that we do, especially for clinicians that are also adoptees, we always like, it's a jaw dropping moment when we discuss this, but like barely anything, if anything at all is ever discussed around adoption. So when we do assessments or when we do intakes, it's like not even asked like, oh, are you an adopted person? Or like, tell me, like I use a family that was created through the experience of through the process of adoption. Like that is such a massive yeah. chapter in anybody's life who's been touched by this experience. And it's often completely overlooked. So I say that because it's really important that when you're vetting a clinician, asking them like, have you had experience working with adopted people before or adopted families? Mm-hmm. Is this part of, and like, what? tell me what that experience has been like for you. Because a lot of times, unfortunately, clinicians just assume, oh, it doesn't really matter. That chapter doesn't really matter because we're just looking at the family now in the present, mm-hmm. not really seeing that individual or this family in the totality and the wholeness and like, from a holistic vantage point. So I just, it just blows my mind how little our clinical world really attunes or understands this experience at all. Yeah. And going off of that, what I think is so important too, and obviously like within, within my practice, you know, people know at this point, like that, that is my niche area. Like I'm working with adoptees or other people that have been impacted by adoption, but for other therapists, right. That may be would take on an adoptee client or something like that. This is something that even when I get referral calls, people don't all the time lead with that, right? So if like an adoptive parent is calling, 
I might not, I might not know off the bat that this is an adoptee they're talking about because they'll say, oh, you know, my child's dealing with mood swings and aggression and, you know, suicidal ideation and all of these things. And it won't come out until maybe later that this child is adopted. So it's mm-hmm. as important for the clinician that you are interviewing to have experience with working with this population, but it is also equally important if you are an adoptive parent or an adoptee that you are disclosing that information to the extent that is appropriate because that is really important stuff for a clinician to know, because that might be the difference between, oh, you know what, I don't know if I'm the right provider for you. I, that's not really the, the population that I work with versus somebody that's, you know, tell me more about that. Or you can kind of get a vibe of, oh, this person has no idea how to work with this population. But that's such crucial information that I think sometimes a lot of like parents or referral calls I get, like they slip it in at the end or like I bring it out. And I think that that's something really important to have out in the open. Yeah, my intake paperwork, I always apologize to new clients because I'm always like, okay, I need you to do intake paperwork and I'm going to need you to devote like 30 minutes because I have a pretty hefty intake packet a lot about adoption. I ask a lot about kind of like that history. And I'm always like, I know it's like not fun to do intake paperwork, but, but it's in like, chunks. But yeah, like, yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting, like an interesting statistic around that is adoptive families seek clinical treatment about three to 5% more than non-adopted families do. And I think that that's a really telling statistic and exactly speaks to what we're saying is that we need to get curious about how that, why are more adopted families entering treatment? Is yeah. it, what, is it the child that is having this grief that's not being attuned to? Is it parents that don't know how to attune to what's coming up in the home? Obviously it's both, but like, how can we, um, attune to that more just like in our intake process? Um, another thing that we talked about was where does this clinician work? Do they have a, a special allegiance maybe to a church or to a an agency or an agency? Obviously that the, you know, allegiance can get a little bit messy, especially if this is where the provider is getting reimbursed from. And whenever we're talking about adoption, we want to keep everything adoptee centered and that can get very messy, very quick. And those lines can get blurred if there is an allegiance. So not to say that like people working for group practices can't do amazing, wonderful work. Um, but just being really mindful of like, but is that an independent operation? Yeah. Yeah. Or is that something that might have an allegiance that could get blurred lines really quickly? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, another one that we had was somebody who's not willing to call out when harm, when harm is being caused. So that might look like somebody who really doesn't understand, again, looking through this experience through the lens of grief, loss, and trauma, and wanting and leaning into spaces that could look like maybe it's not really grasping the magnitude of racial um, harm, being being raised in racial isolation. It might be, you know, a a clinician who really leans into punishment versus understanding what co-regulation is. Yeah, I see that a lot. And it kind of goes back to it's why it's really important to ask the provider if they're willing to um, collaborate with schools or other entities, because I see that with a lot of the kids I work with. Um, I 
I, I stir the pot at schools a whole bunch. Schools know that, you know, if I'm working with one of their kids, I will go to battle for those kids. And I say that to parents from the jump is like, I will, I will fight for your baby and make sure that like this is getting taken seriously and that the school is providing in a way that is going to meet their needs. And I think that that's really important because some of these schools and some of these other entities, whether it's an agency or whatever, um, they're really stuck in their way of like one size fits all policy. And that just doesn't work. And so I think that that is really important that you're working with a provider that is going to, um, you know, have, have that I don't even know what it is, have that gene in them of just being able to, you know, kind of confront, but in a healthy healing kind of way. Because both of us, I I think, have the experience of working with clinicians or knowing clinicians who maybe come, who work from this angle. But um, when a clinician can promise that everything will be solved or resolved within eight to 10 sessions, that's a huge- Mentiras, lies. <laughs> yeah, that's una mentira. And yeah, I think that that's something that, you know, just be, be skeptical of that, especially because when it comes to the experience of adoption, this is lifelong work and what might be coming up for you today might look very different, what comes up for you 10 years from now. And, um, so just allowing yourself to pivot when needed and lead into different supports when needed. Um, but it's not possible to, you know, wrap up and say like, okay, like we're going to do six sessions and that's it. Or or I'm always very skeptical when I hear, you know, people that will say, oh, well, you know, this clinician made me the promise of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, I tell my people up front, like I will very, very rarely promise anything. Like I guarantee stuff when it comes to like trying out co-regulation tactics or, you know, trying, you know, certain things here and there, but like in terms of overall, like we're going to have things done by this date, like it is impossible to process that if you are truly being adoptee centered in your approach. Another thing that I think is different is a lot of times other clinicians will have the mentality is that if you've been working with a clinician for a year, something's wrong. But I am here to tell you, my friends, that when people sign up and work with us, they work with us for years. The majority of my caseload I've been working with for years. That is cool. And that's not because we're not doing meaningful work. There's a lot of reasons why. It's because our systems do a really good job of not wanting to realize hard and heavy stuff and getting our systems to not be phobic to realizing some of that can take a long time. Um, other modalities that a lot of clinicians use, and I'm not knocking, I think that there's you know stuff to be learned and useful tools, but like certain modalities like CBT, um, I don't think they really do the trick when working with our population. So that's another kind of thing to, if somebody's just pushing CBT, like, yeah, there might be some helpful things there, but I don't think it's going to get to the nuts and bolts of what you're want, the work that you're wanting to do when working with our population. Yeah, Um, really, any kind of like traditional like talk therapy therapy. really does not do, it does not do the trick. Yeah. We have to involve our whole system, our nervous systems into the experience, or we're going to be missing the mark. So I think somatic, sensory-based, um, you know, more hard, heavy. The true things, trauma work. True yeah. trauma work, EMDR, brain spotting, all that stuff is so important. One last thing that I just want to attune people to as well is, and again, this is not something that is a 
absolute like deal breaker, but I think it is one of those things that does warrant more conversation is this um, label of a therapist being adoption competent. Mm. And this may be a little bit um, controversial sometimes, but I just put it out there because I hear a lot of people that I consult with or anything like that you know, using that terminology and not really understanding that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a trauma therapist. And also anybody can really say that they're adoption competent. Like if you go on psychology today, people can just say that they're adoption competent without having necessarily gone through specific training. Like somebody could say they're adoption competent just because they're interested in working in adoption because they previously worked at an agency or a foster care system kind of worker um, because they went to a training or two. Like that is stuff that sometimes is all that is encompassing their adoption competence. And which I mean, I hope we can all agree is not enough, right? So I think that that is something just to be wary of that sometimes clinicians throw that around, and it's not necessarily um, accurate. And so that is something that I always encourage people if you see that, um, just ask, ask more information, if they're saying that, and also kind of check all of the boxes for some of those other really important things that we described earlier awesome. Um, but if that's something that they're just like saying, oh yeah, I'm adoption competent. I work, you know, with adoption and like, that's all they got. Red flag. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite questions that I've ever been asked from a prospective client was how do you invest? So meaning me, the client was asking me, how do you invest in self-care and are you in your own therapy? And I was like, dang. I've never gotten asked that question. I want to get asked I that question. I thought it was so insightful. And I was like, I love that you just asked me that. And I was like, this is what I do for self-care. I'm absolutely my own therapy. And, you know, I didn't have to disclose every dirty detail, but what I love, one of the things I'm really committed to in my practice is decolonizing therapy. And a lot of what we learn in schools are these very colonized distance approaches. As a TRA therapist, a transracial adoptee therapist, I work with a lot of TRAs. And so there's like a lot of stuff ancestrally in our bodies and our systems. Yes. And we just feel the need to know what it's like to be in community. Like we crave that. We need that. And so I try really hard to decolonize a lot of my work. And one of the ways that I do that is trying to make my experience feel very relatable as a human. I love that. Like, I always think about that when I have consults is like, I love when people aren't afraid to just ask the really vulnerable questions because it kind of tells you if your provider is willing to just admit that they're also a human, right? And not right. like they're like on this they're not a machine, like they're, yeah, yeah, they're human in this. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love that because I think that the biggest thing that I truly believe that people say as well is that relational trauma is healed through relationships. And the more that we can get on level with our clients, the more that that becomes a possibility. So yeah, I just thought that was a super- Love that question. That was a great to that question. person. Yeah. Yep. So I don't think I've ever been asked that. Yeah. Nobody cares about that. my self-care routine. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so yeah, so hopefully this was helpful. We've gotten tons of emails and questions and messages about, 
you know, what, what should I ask? What can I look for? All that good stuff. So um, please feel free to let us know what you thought about this episode, or if there's anything that you want to, would want to add to either side of the house, something that you think is important when looking yeah. or something that you would fall into the red, red flag camp. Yeah. But things that love- you have done to get your therapy village up and running, your healing village up and running. Mm-hmm. We love hearing I just love hearing what works for people. And it's like, I think there's such beauty in that it doesn't always have to be the same. Um, I mean, you and I are just like super weird and line up on a whole bunch of things. But like, I think that it's a really beautiful thing when I see adoptees coming in or adoptive families and like they just are are open to experimenting and seeing what works for them. And I think that that's really cool. Yeah. So if there's somebody out there who is entering therapy for the first time, what would be some advice you have for that person? It's not necessarily advice, but I would want to say that you are super courageous and super brave. Um, It is such a huge step and it is okay to be really scared and to be really uncomfortable. And I encourage you to just embrace it and embrace the opportunity to learn how to be vulnerable safely. Um, That was something that I think I really took away when I really made the plunge into dedicating and committing to therapy is I, I, I wanted to learn how to be genuinely, authentically vulnerable. And I needed a space where I could like have my training wheels on and like learn how to do it and get through all of this, you know, baggage and stuff that I was, I was, um, carrying. And so I think just my advice would be just to embrace it and embrace all the feelings that go along with it because it is all valid. It all makes so much sense. Um, and just being able to lean into some of that, scariness and some of that discomfort because it's it can be really a life-changing thing Mm, I love that I think what about you yeah I think for me it would be so similar I would echo all that on being courageous and leaning into the process of growth I think all of us are I think all of our healing all of our growth all of our development is well within our reach if we're brave enough to to reach out our hand and welcome that in Um, I think that sometimes we get so focused on like where we want to be that we get really pulled from the present and we miss all the things that are happening right now, even if it's hard stuff. I like to warn people that oftentimes it gets harder before it gets better, but that's normal because you're working really, like I said earlier, like you work so hard, like these protective parts get activated and we work so hard not to realize things that are uncomfortable because we're humans and we hate being uncomfortable. Yeah. But if we're able to just stick it out, um, you know, healing is definitely growth and all that stuff is definitely within our reach and vulnerability is absolutely our superpower. So I love what you said about learning how to be vulnerable, but doing it safely and and, and having that space to authentically grow. So I always am so inspired by my clients. I'm so thankful to grow community with all of you listening. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for always cheering us on. Um, Stay tuned for some exciting guest speakers that we have coming up. We're just, the topics are incredible. There's some good ones. So good. And as always, feel free to reach out with your thoughts, questions, opinions, stories, um, you can reach us on Instagram at adoptiesdish podcast or Gmail at adoptiesdish at gmail.com. And we look forward to talking with you next week. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day.
Thank you so much for listening to Adoptee's Dish. We want to give a special shout out to Patreon, Spotify, iTunes, and Anchor. If you like what you heard and want to support our work or allow us to have amazing guests on the show, please consider making a donation. We can be reached on Instagram at Adoptee's Dish Podcast, at Grohio Blossom, and Marcella Maslow. And you can send us emails at adoptiesdish at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and join us next week for our next episode. Please share this podcast. Talk to others about things you learned. Together, we have the potential to heal broken systems.